Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Peter Salisbury about the civil war in Yemen. Then, John, Will, and I talk about the U.S. role in the conflict. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Peter Salisbury is the senior analyst for Yemen at the International Crisis Group. He has been working on Yemen for more than a decade, and in my experience, he is one of the best informed people I've ever spoken to about the ongoing conflict in Yemen. Peter, welcome to Babel. Thanks very much for having me, Jim. So who's fighting in Yemen right now? The really simple version is you've got the Houthis, who is increasingly control the northwest of Yemen. And they're fighting a pretty wide range of mainly local groups with a bunch of different international backers. And you can kind of subdivide them into tribal and politically aligned forces backed by Saudi Arabia and Yemen's internationally recognized government in Marib and Taz. And then secessionist and formerly Houthi-aligned forces in the south of the country and along the, the Red Sea coast who are linked to the United Arab Emirates, but also work with the Saudis. And the, the issue in, in kind of describing these as one block, one group, is that there has at times been as much fighting between some of the secessionists, the pro-independence groups in the south and the government and its allies, as there has been between these groups and the Houthis. And increasingly, we have a number of armed groups who are pretty powerful, who overtly are not aligned with the government and not in this war to bring the president Hadi back. So although from the outside, it looks like a a relatively simple two-party war, and some people would want to call it a, a proxy war, I think you know I wouldn't. The reality is you've got all these different groups with different agendas lined up against each other. And even within the Houthis, there's a pretty wide range of groups doing the fighting. Where are they fighting over? The Houthis have got a very strong narrative, a story that they like to tell, which is that in 2014, they launched a, a revolution against a corrupt government that was doing the bidding of the United States and, and other regional players. The president resigned at the beginning of 2015. They replaced him with a revolutionary council and later a political council. And since 2015, Saudi Arabia, with the United States backing, has been launching what they'd call an aggression and a siege against their revolutionary forces to try and undo their revolution, which from the outside, we have a slightly different story. We say there was a coup in 2014. Saudi Arabia intervened on the side of Yemen's internationally recognized president. The president wants to get back into power. He wants to go back to Sana'an and be the leader of Yemen. That looks increasingly unlikely. He's not a very popular figure. And then most of the forces on the ground in the north of Yemen are really fighting just to defend their home turf and are hoping against hope that something will happen to get rid of the Houthis. Many of the forces in the south want to break away from the north of Yemen and go back to pre-1990 dividing lines when there were two separate states, one in the north, one in the south. So... How many people are fighting where? Is this a real war? The Houthis have largely consolidated control over the Northwest. Where are people fighting? 
The big fight right now is in Marib. And Marib sits to the, the east of Sana'a, and it's really the last major urban stronghold for the government and its allies in the north of Yemen. And the Houthis are honing in on Marib. One, because taking over really sort of means the government doesn't have a firm foothold anywhere in Yemen. It's already been pushed out of its temporary capital in Aden by the Southern Transitional Council. And also, Marib has oil gas fields, a refinery, a power plant. And really, if the Houthis take it over, they've reconstituted again the pre-1990 economic system that Yemen ran on. So they're really focused on going in there, getting this last piece of the jigsaw puzzle for the phase and iteration of the conflict. And then we've got these other kind of sub-conflicts. So recently, there was a lot of fighting in a government called Al-Baitha, where local tribal forces, Salafist forces, even some of these secessionist forces launched this huge push against the Houthis. And it was a really strong example of the extent to which the anti-Houthi war effort really isn't very well coordinated. The complaint very quickly was the government isn't giving us support. Saudi Arabia isn't giving us support. We end up with this really complex and quite toxic situation. And then you can name five or six other fronts, the Red Sea coast. You've got forces led by a guy called Tariq Saleh, who's the nephew of the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was on the Houthis side until the end of 2017, flipped when the Houthis killed his uncle. He won't swear allegiance to President Hadi and place himself under Hadi's command and control. But at the same time, he's treated as being part of this wider anti-Houthi bloc. There are about sort of six or seven major fronts, and Marib is, is the, the hottest one right now. The stakes in Marib, because of the, the oil and gas, are high. Is that enough to get the interested parties to really hold off the Houthis, or do they just not have enough power? The, the issue with Marib is, so we keep hearing you know, a, a Yemen national army led by the government, backed by Saudi Arabia. But when you speak to people in Marib, what you learn fairly quickly is the people doing the real fighting to hold off this Houthi advance are local tribal forces who, of course, don't want to, to lose control of their areas. And the main thing that's really held them back is Saudi air power. So the, the Saudis have been able to hold them off. But even then, the trend line is this gradual, slow, inexorable eating away at territory in the south and the west of Marib as the Houthis push on and on towards Marib city. And it has to be said, try and negotiate their way in. Try and create so much pressure on local tribal leaders that they cut deals with them, which has worked in other parts of the country, but hasn't worked here. So you've got this, this issue on the one side of people getting quite demoralized because they realize that sort of the big push against the Houthis just isn't coming. The reality is you've got these local tribal forces who complain they're not being given the money, the weapons, even the ammunition needed to make this kind of an equal fight. And the only thing that really has made a, a difference and prevented a complete sort of Houthi push to the outskirts of the city is Saudi air power. And if the story that was being told at the beginning of the summer is you get these crazy dust storms in Marib and that the Houthis were waiting for some of these dust storms, 
so that sort of the air cover would be less effective and that they could push towards Marib. A year ago, people in Yemen were saying, well, the Houthis are losing so many guys in this offensive that clearly they will not be able to sustain it a year and a half in. They can sustain it. They might not make sort of the breakthrough tomorrow, but the trend and trajectory definitely points towards them arriving on the outskirts of Marib at some point, absent some sort of game-changing factor or some sort of political settlement. What's happening in the rest of the country? And how do we know what's happening in the rest of the country with it being so difficult to visit and move around? The really simple answer is WhatsApp, right? WhatsApp signal. I speak to people in pretty much every part of the country fairly regularly. And that's part of my job. And with the International Crisis Group, we like to think of ourselves as being primarily focused on field-based research. So we try to get into the country as much as is humanly possible. And that for me has been really a couple of times a year until the pandemic began. Every time I travel in, it doesn't matter who I've been speaking to. It doesn't matter how much detail I've tried to draw out of people in phone calls, emails, WhatsApp messages. You're always going to find so many more layers to the onion when you get there and you're going to hear so many different stories. So the the simple answer is, Our information is the best it can be at times, but nothing beats doing real proper field research. And of course, that lends itself to a lot of misinformation and storytelling. And it allows the different parties to this conflict to say a lot of things about what's happening on ground. And there's a really limited number of people who have been working on Yemen as as researchers for a, a long, long time who can get in and out of all these different parts of the country and bring back sort of detailed, fairly accurate reporting. But there are some excellent journalists and, and researchers working on on the ground, and I have to tip my hat to the, the guys at places like the Sunar Center and Deep Root, which is a, a consulting firm that does a, these really great regular reports, who definitely have really been pushing locally-led research. U.S. Embassy in Yemen is now based in Saudi Arabia, What's at stake for the United States in Yemen? In terms of its national security priorities, counterterrorism is still pretty high on the list. Regional stability, the stability of Saudi Arabia, and then the free flow of international trade. And somewhere on that list as well, of course, is a keenly felt moral obligation towards what is the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And what tools has the U.S. been using, I mean, for the last several decades? That's kind of chopped and changed. Yemen was definitely a policy backwater for a long, long time. That changed after 9-11 because you had various jihadist groups, including those who tried to attack U.S. soldiers in Aden in the 1990s in hotels and then launched, of course, the, the attack on USS Cole, which was claimed by Al-Qaeda not too long before 9-11. So you saw a lot of focus on CT work there and the development of local counterterrorism forces, intelligence forces, so on and so forth. And then the drone program was pretty heavily implemented in Yemen into the mid-2010s. And what we've seen over the course of the conflict is this kind of one foot in one foot out approach to Yemen, where at the beginning of the war, American officials wanted to reassure Saudi Arabia because JCPOA was happening 
at the same time as the the war really beginning and the, the Saudi intervention in 2015, but very quickly soured of the way the war was being fought, of the lack of strategic thinking that was going into either trying to win or end through a negotiated settlement, the conflict. And I'd say that there's been a lot of drift, particularly since 2018, when the UAE oversaw this push towards Hodeida, when people started talking about the humanitarian implications of that push. And there was a lot of reporting coming out of big American media outlets about human cost of this war. Most recently, this February, we saw the Biden administration coming out with what was described as a, a policy pivot in many ways was actually just enshrining policies that had quietly been put in place. No more offensive support to the, the Saudis in Yemen stepped up support for diplomacy. But I mean, the problem is that that's not going to change the realities on the ground. You've written about the need for a comprehensive negotiation between representatives of diverse interests in Yemen to really resolve this, that it's going to be messy, you have to bring people to the table. Starting in 2011, Yemen set about establishing a national dialogue conference, 565 delegates meant to encompass everybody that had large quotas for women and young people. There was a lot of UN support, a lot of international support. I remember that the National Democratic Institute was very involved. I mean, this was a push to resolve the issues that were bubbling in the wake of the Arab Spring, Yemen soon dissolved into war. If we're going to have a big negotiating process to resolve all of the complex issues in Yemen, how do we set it up differently to get a different outcome than the last time Yemen had a big process? We've got to look at what happened around the national dialogue and the contexts that happened in and where we are today, because they're two very different things. People talk about the national dialogue sometimes as if it was the only component of Yemen's political transition. So 2011, we have an uprising in Yemen against what people see as a corrupt, kleptocratic, anti-democratic regime. And what happens midway through that uprising is different bits of the regime who have sort of had a tense relationship for years and years, break with each other and start fighting each other on the streets. And this is when regional players and the US get really worried about Yemen because they see the regime dissolving. And that for them means that there is a vacuum and there's a space that Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. And what we end up with at the end of 2011 is really an elite bargain, first and foremost, between the GPC, the General People's Congress, this kind of umbrella opposition group led by a group called Islah, which is Yemen's main Sunni Islamist party. And it's really a network built around Islah, a network built around the GPC who've been fighting each other in 2011. So they enter into a, a unity government. Salah's former vice president, who's the current president, Hadi, is named as interim president. And they oversee this period when they're meant to be doing some economic military security reform. So they still have the reins of power. And at the same time, the national dialogue happens. And the national dialogue has no input into the way that the country is being run. There are multiple kind of sub-conflicts that are escalating, escalating, escalating. And the sense in, in Sanan was this real disconnect between these three things, which were the situation on the ground, the reality lived 
by Yemenis, the National Dialogue Conference and these quite sort of utopian views of the future, and then the actual governance of the country, which was meant to be led by these parties who were still conducting sort of just a lower intensity conflict with one another, creating a vacuum into which other groups like the Houthis, like Southern Secessionists, like Al-Qaeda could really penetrate. But the people at the conference, in many cases, most cases, didn't have very much power. What's happened since 2014, 2015, since the civil war began, is that Sana'a's grip over the rest of the country, its status as the center of power, that's actually gone. So yes, the Houthis control the northwest of Yemen, its most populous areas, but Marib is by and large controlled by Marabis. What we've seen over the course of the conflict is establishment of lots and lots of armed groups, new security networks, new kind of governance networks, and people at the local level now control their own areas and are trying to varying degrees of success to run their own areas. They're not going to give that up at the end of this. So this is no longer a power struggle between an elite in Sana'a who hold the balance of, of power. It's now a power struggle between these formerly peripheral areas among themselves and with this new kind of dominant force of the Houthis in the northwest. So if we move towards some form of inclusive dialogue going forward, we're no longer in a position where, for example, the Houthis and Hadi can form a unity government in, in Sana'a and just try and impose their writ and play the same games. These guys at the local level can come up to the national level and say, hey, you actually have to listen to me and you don't get to sort of just take back over. So in, in some ways, that almost feels like a return to the 1980s in Yemen. I traveled to Yemen in the early 1990s. Since that time, Ali Abdullah Saleh as, as president consolidated control over a lot of the country. One of the things that was happening when I was there is they were building a lot of roads, and the roads allowed the government to have access to places the government previously didn't have access to and allowed central government control to spread. What it sounds like you're suggesting is that there's a need to do the opposite of consolidation and have significantly more peripheral control? I think, so I mean, going back to the national dialogue, one of the things that was agreed was the country should be highly decentralized in the way that it was governed to prevent effectively the situation of a regime assimilating all the power and resources at the center. And there was broad agreement the country should become a federal state. But what we've got still is this national dialogue conference outcomes document that pretty clearly says this is going to be a highly decentralized country. And in fact, Yemen's already got laws on the books that say this. So what we're, we're talking about right now is that the reality kind of matches the vision in some ways that people had before, with the exception, again, of the Houthi-controlled areas, which are unquestionably a highly securitized police state and where probably 70% of the population lives. But realistically, Federalism and decentralization tends to work best when you have strong local and national institutions. And in Yemen, what we've got is weak, uncoordinated, diffuse, mismatched institutions locally, nationally. But what that, that also means is that the international community, foreign players, as they come and they look at Yemen, they really need to think quite critically about their approach. 
because the way that they bring funds in the future around reconstruction, governance, so on and so forth, will really shape the incentives for people to do things one way or another. And if they decide they want to put all their effort into capacity building for national institutions in Sana'a, then we're going down that same slippery slope. But if they want to put their time and effort into making sure that we have strong local institutions all over Yemen, and that those then coordinate, link up, and become part of a, a national system, where there's a much stronger balance between the local and, and the national, that's the best way forward. It's a large challenge, but sounds like one we're going to be engaged in for a long time. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. Next up, John, Will, and I speak about the U.S. role in the conflict moving forward. What has the Biden administration changed about the U.S. role in Yemen? The initial U.S. approach under the Obama administration was to support Saudi Arabia. And then partly because of pressure from Congress, the U.S. decided it would step a little bit away from Saudi Arabia. I think what you've seen in the Biden administration is the United States stepping forward much more aggressively toward resolving the conflict. They appointed Tim Linderking as a special envoy. And I think there's been a realization that the Saudi role has changed. It's not just merely about getting the Saudis to stop attacking the Houthis, but it's also about getting the Houthis to agree to some sort of future in Yemen that accommodates different views. There's concern that the Houthis partly as proxies of Iran, but also as a group that doesn't really feel bound by convention, could threaten Red Sea shipping, could be a huge problem for global security. And I think what the Biden administration is doing is trying to lay the groundwork for a process in Yemen that advances the security of everybody involved, including Yemenis. What kinds of incentives are going to be needed at the end of the day? How to bring all the different parties in Yemen on board, how to deal with the lingering problems of extremist groups, Salafi, jihadi groups who are scattered throughout Yemen, I think it is going to be a significant problem. One of the challenges the U.S. has had in the past is only paying attention to Yemen when there's been a counterterrorism problem. And when the counterterrorism problem goes away, the U.S. attention goes away. The challenge is, can you really end a terrorism problem when you have a country that is desperately poor, desperately poorly governed, fraught by conflict, and that conflict manifests in all kinds of ways, but mostly people with guns tend to dictate outcomes. Maybe just to add to that, I think it's striking to look at the difference between what then-candidate Joe Biden said about the Yemen conflict versus the early moves that his administration has taken. I mean, in one of the debates, he referred to Saudi Arabia as a pariah and said that he would cease weapon sales. And then certainly we've seen the State Department, I think, conduct a review and suspend some offensive weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. But on the whole, I think the early signs from this administration do seem to indicate that, well, one, Saudi Arabia is a really important part of the US role in the Yemen conflict and its ability to try and leverage Saudi behavior is, I think, one of the ways in which the US can 
shape the conflict and try to bring an end to the conflict. But also, I think, an acknowledgement that, yes, yeah, Saudi Arabia is not the main blocking force in this anymore and is not the main issue. And, and so I think just stopping all weapon sales is, is not going to solve any of the other myriad problems that uh, Peter Salisbury just talked about in the interview. There are a couple of other moves, I think, which are probably important. I think, as John said, part of the diplomatic role was very quickly appointing Timothy Lenderking as special envoy to Yemen. And I think he's been on a lot of trips to the Gulf and elsewhere, trying to really bolster Omani efforts to mediate, trying to bolster the UN-led process. But another move that the Biden administration took, which I think was seen as quite controversial, was delisting the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. And certainly some critics said that this was taken sort of unilaterally without seeking concessions from the Houthis. But I think that does open up some more space for the United States to attempt to engage more, although I think they have very limited leverage over the Houthis directly. So the civil war has been going on since 2014, and there have been failed political attempts to find a solution. What outcome would be most aligned with U.S. interests? I think any outcome where the fighting stops and when people are having political disputes instead of armed disputes, that's positive. One of the problems when you, you get into to this kind of situation is that the people with guns not only have the power, but the guns decide how disputes work out. And, and the U.S. goal over time is that there is no military solution to this conflict. There has to be a political solution. Getting to that, when the Houthis still think that there is a military solution, they're going to take over Madhab. And from that vantage point, they can control the political outcomes, makes it very hard until Madhab is resolved to get a successful negotiation, because you end up having both sides, the Saudis and the parties they support, and the Houthis feeling that they will get a better deal in the future than they're getting now. So they should keep fighting now. How does Yemen fit into the broader U.S. strategy in the Middle East? So I think the Biden administration is really keen to show that it can put more effort behind diplomatic efforts to solve conflicts in the region and that it's going to have a lighter military role in the region, but can play more of a diplomatic role to basically to bring about better conditions for people who live in the region. And I think when you look across the array of conflicts in the Middle East at the moment, as complex as Yemen is, it is sometimes seen as potentially one of the opportunities that is riper for a mediation and for diplomacy. And so I think from that perspective, the United States is keen to try and make progress on the Yemen file and I think that could potentially unlock some progress elsewhere in the region. There's a big debate about how much Iran really directs the behavior of the Houthis. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence to show that although they clearly provide support for the Houthis, they're not able to control their behavior or dictate their behavior. But nonetheless, I think an agreement between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis could be seen as an important step in terms of a confidence-building measure between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which could unlock progress on other parts of the region. 
And so there are two real challenges here. One is, as I said, the United States has always had a problem sustaining focus on Yemen when there hasn't been a counterterrorism issue in Yemen. And there's a U.S. instinct to take your eye off the ball unless that ball is a counterterrorism ball. So this process is going to take some time. And if the U.S. intends to support the process, it's going to have to maintain its focus. That also becomes harder when it's in the context of the U.S. pivoting its attention away from the Middle East and putting more attention on Asia. And so how you get the U.S. sustaining attention to Yemen, and not just in terms of money, but in terms of of diplomatic footprint and effort and all those things and priority, how you do that when the main game is seen to be in Asia and there's not an Asia angle to Yemen, I think is a challenge the U.S. sustaining the focus. It's not to say that the Biden administration won't try to do it. It's not to say a successor administration won't try to do it. But making Yemen, which a lot of people don't know a lot about and don't think there's a big U.S. stake in, making that a continuous thread in U.S. foreign policy is going to be very, very difficult. So to that end, what kind of role can the United States play in Yemen at this point in the conflict? The U.S. remains not only an important mediator, but the U.S. has an organizational capacity to bring other countries to the table. And if you see this as a a joint U.S., European, and perhaps others effort, the U.S. has an organizational ability to make that real that few other countries really have. I think one of the challenges of Yemen is that the only country that really feels a deep stake in Yemen is Saudi Arabia. The country that sees opportunities in Yemen is generally Iran, which has given a relatively limited amount of funding to the Houthis and a relatively limited amount of arms and has caused all kinds of challenges for the Saudis, for the Emiratis and others. I think as a way of gaining leverage for a totally different set of disputes they have with the Saudis and the Emiratis. As long as you have a a growing conflict between Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Iran, it's hard to get Yemen onto a a more constructive pathway. I think that everybody is reluctant to make Yemen a pathway for better cooperation for fear that the Iranians would say, aha, it's working, and they'd be less cooperative rather than more cooperative. But if you can reduce tensions between Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Iran, and there have been efforts by both the Saudis and the Emiratis to do that, Can Yemen improve along the way? I think that's possible. But then again, Yemen becomes a product of a whole different process that has its own logic. And the possibility is that the suffering of Yemenis gets much, much worse before it gets better. Definitely. I think the moves that President Biden has made on Yemen in just the first few months of his administration show that the US does have the ability to really bolster diplomacy around Yemen. I mean, there are reports that in the direct talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Yemen is coming up. Oman is playing a greater role. The United Nations is trying to play a greater role. The United States can have an impact here. And I don't think it necessarily needs to be as a completely neutral player as well. The United States is not neutral in this in this conflict. But I think if you look at 
the role of of sort of mediators. They they don't necessarily have to be completely neutral. They can help bring about a solution that is acceptable to their allies and partners, in this case, Saudi Arabia. And I think if the United States can help usher this talks in a way that that would be acceptable to Saudi Arabia, then that could actually be be very positive. But there is certainly the danger that if talks proceed too quickly, and if mediation efforts are rushed, then you could end up in a situation that is not going to be sustainable and that actually makes matters even worse for Yemenis. And I think that's something really sort of to keep in mind is given all of the different moving pieces in Yemen and all of the stakes for that different local actors have, how can you bring about some kind of resolution which actually can endure and that isn't just going to be broken as soon as international actors have, have sort of pulled out? John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.